All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Redeemer. My name is Brian Paget, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, so <clears throat> I'm going to start by saying this. I was going to show a video of a, a comedian that I like named Brian Regan, and uh, it was going to be the me monster part of. And so if you know Brian Regan, it's none of you laughed. So I'm guessing none of you know Brian Regan. But uh, he has this whole section where he talks about the me monster, and he's talking about how. You know, it's in his uh, video on, he land, you know, I landed on the moon. And basically what he says is, uh, you know, I want to be the guy that's like one of the 12 people that's walked on the moon. Because like your story is always going to trump everybody else's story. And so he's talking about he's at this dinner party and this guy's going off on how he's like, how rich he is. And he's got cars on the Autobahn and he's doing all this, yada, yada, yada. And the guy's just sitting here. And so Brian tells something about himself and the guy looks at him and is like, man, that's nothing. And he's like, oh, sorry to be telling my nothing story, you know, by all means, you have the floor. So he's like, just imagine if you're one of the people that's walked on the moon, right? And this guy's just rattling off all this stuff and you just sit there slowly eating and you're like, I walked on the moon, you know? And so you kind of shut that dude down. But he talks about we all have this like me monster right within us. And so where we're going this morning is it's part two of last week. So last week was Glory Thieves part one. This week's Glory Thieves part two. Uh, and the reason I've titled it that is because when you understand chapter 11, really chapters 11 through 14, what Paul is doing is he's talking about uh, the gathered body of Christ, right? And so you've got to understand the Corinthian culture. It is not like Stillwater, Oklahoma, right? So the Corinthian culture uh, it was made up of Jews and Romans and Greeks and all these different people, rich and poor, slaves, free, all these things. But they didn't have, right, a Baptist church and a Presbyterian church and a Methodist church and a non-denominational church and fill in the blanks. They were the church at Corinth. Now, they met in different homes. Uh, and one of the things that we want to do in this society is say, we'll see if we were really doing it like the early church, we would just be one church. Why can't we just be one church? But the problem with that is that this one church Paul's writing to in the first four chapters, all he's dealing with is their divisiveness. So if you think by becoming one church in Stillwater, we won't be divisive. You don't understand humanity. You don't understand how we work, right? And so there's a lot of divisiveness going on in the Corinthian church. Now, one of the things we need to understand about ourselves is that we are glory-hungry people. And usually when that is presented to us, it's presented to us in the negative. But I want to present it to you in the positive. And here's what I mean. When God created us, he created us in his image. And what God did in creating us in his image is he bestowed honor and glory on us by making us his image bearers. When Adam and Eve are in the garden and the serpent comes and, and tells them this half-truth, right? That if you eat of this tree, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Half of that was true, but it was just a half-truth. But what they saw was that there was an opportunity for greater glory. And so they eat from this tree, and then what ultimately happens is shame comes on them, alienation, and ultimately death. But every one of us is still image bearers of God. And so deep within every human being is this longing for glory, this longing for honor. So we still have that hunger. But the problem is, is that we've had that honor and that glory bestowed on us by other things. Or we've bestowed it on ourselves. And so we all cringe at the person who's super self-absorbent and ultimately narcissistic. And all they want to talk about is themselves, the me monster, right? The person that's constantly talking about themselves as if to say, I deserve all the honor because I believe I'm worthy and you should give it to me also. And the thing is that happens with people who have everything and they, they like to boast in their accomplishments so that you'll be like, well, amen, but I'd like to, to give them the honor. Or people that don't have anything that'll say, look at the hardships I've endured. Look how strong I am. Look at all these other things. 
We're always looking for someone to bestow honor and glory onto us. We're hungry for glory. We're hungry for that honor. The problem is that we've misplaced those things and we've sought vain glory, empty glory. That's why Romans 1.23 will talk about how we've exchanged the glory of God for images of man and reptiles and animals and other created things. We have flipped everything upside down. We've worshiped the creation rather than the creator and we're seeking vain glory for ourselves. And this is the backdrop we're gonna come up against here. And we saw this a little bit last week with where Paul is talking about the distinctions between male and female and how they gather to worship. And he says, I commend you. And what he's commending them for is because, hey, when you gather together to worship, this is a good thing. What you're doing is you're supposed to gather regularly to worship together. And so he's commending them for this, this tradition that's been passed down. But he says, hey, I want to caution you that you understand, and he's going to do this again this week, you understand that our worship gathering is to take the shape of the cross. Now, don't hear that as geometric, right? We don't have to come in here and sit in a style that looks like a cross That's not what he's going for. Our buildings don't have to be shaped like a cross where we have this going on. When we say the shape of the cross is to take on the cruciform life, meaning our worship should be a cruciform shape, meaning that we we take on Christ's demeanor as he approached the cross and the way Christ is, which is humility, which is giving up our rights and our freedoms and our preferences for the sake of the other. To, to outdo one another, as Paul will say in Romans 12.10, in showing honor to one another. Now, we're not an honor and shame culture. We are more than we think we are. That's why people don't know how to handle cancel culture. I mean, like, we're like, cancel culture? How is this a thing? And I'm like, yeah, the whole honor and shame society like around the world are going, yeah, what do you, what's your problem? Like, that's been going on forever. The way honor and shame works is kind of like our credit system works, right? And so to receive honor in that time was kind of credit to your account. It's like having a, a low credit score, right? If you have a low credit score, you're not, you don't have a certain ability to do certain things. And so in society, when you're a shamed person, you didn't have credibility. So what would happen in Rome is they had these meals that they would do that the Christians ultimately called these love feasts. And they would turn their they, they created their own version of this, but there were these gatherings where there was a time to network, right? It was a way to kind of hobnob with the big, big names and the big dogs and to run with those folks and, and receive the honor of being connected to them. So all your honor was a relational capital thing. It was, it was this idea that I'm with so-and-so and I bear their name or I'm with this person. And so honor was a big deal, but so was shame. And shame was sometimes not a bad thing. We've got to be careful when we say, well, shame is always bad. Shame's not always bad. Shame can be corrective and shame had good aspects. But there was this level of shame that made you despised and unwanted and worthless. And that's the backdrop we go into. And I want to read verses 17 through 22 uh, as Paul writes this. And I want you to hear his emotion, right, as he's responding to them. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So remember, last week he was commending them. This week, he has no praise for them. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now let's stop there. What is Paul addressing? There's two things. One, he's like, I'm not praising you. Because when you get together, it is not for better, it is for worse. That's encouraging. Now, he's just commended them for gathering together last week, right? Hey, I'm, I praise you, man. Like, you're, you're keeping these truths. This is a good thing, what you're doing. But now he's going, here's the thing that I would tweak about your gathering. Here's the thing that I despise about your gathering. And I don't commend you for this. Because when you get together, it is for worse. Why? Two reasons. One, you're divisive. He's already addressed these divisions in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, right? When you get together, there's these, these, these factions that are among you. And he says, I believe it in part because it's to show who the true genuine believers are. Now, some would say this is actually to show who the true dividers are, who are the ones. Either way, Paul is making the same point. The point is this, that when you gather together, what is ultimately happening is those that who belong to Christ and will submit themselves to Christ are the people who will confess, repent, and they will grow in likeness. The other ones will stay hard and fast in their devices. So either way, whether he's saying the genuine people who are the dividers or the genuine people who belong to Jesus, he is saying that I believe this in part because when you get together, here's what's happening. It's starting to kind of separate out the weed from the weeds, uh, from the wheat. <clears throat> so that's the first part. And he's going to talk about their divisiveness. And we'll hit on that a little bit more here. And then he says this in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. Now, at these love feasts, okay, this is what would happen. They would gather together around a meal. The meal was the centerpiece of the early church, okay? This is a big, big deal here. Don't hear love feasts and just think, oh, this is some like one-off thing they did quarterly. No, this was their regular gathering. This is how they gathered to worship. What we're doing right now would be them gathering in love feast. Okay, so when they would gather, they would gather in the home of someone who had space for them. They would gather in that. Maybe they gathered open air, but a lot of times it would be in someone's home. But they would have a meal as the centerpiece of this. At the end of the meal, they would take the Lord's Supper together. Okay, so what Paul is saying is when you gather together, you're not taking the Lord's Supper. What he's not, he's not making a statement of fact. He's not saying, hey, the love feasts aren't the Lord's Supper. He is saying when you do take the Lord's Supper, you're in fact not taking it at all. And that's where he's going to go with this, okay? And now remember, we got glory and honor in, in mind here, right? That the gathering of the church, when we gather together like this, there is a public witness that's involved with this, but there is the glory of God that's at stake. And so if we're glory thieves when we come into the worship service, we are robbing from God what is rightfully his, and therefore we are dishonoring his name, we're profaning his name, and that has public implications, and if you don't think that matters, just go look up how many people are deconstructing their faith in America right now. In this city. Like, I'm having conversations with people in our church that are wondering, am I really a Christian anymore? If this is what Christianity is, is that really what I signed up for? And I watch pastor after pastor after pastor, well, if they left us, they were never with us. And all I hear in my head is Matthew 18, where Jesus says, if you lead one of these little ones astray, it would have been better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the sea. 
Don't cop out on this one. Don't take the easy route. Well, they just weren't with us. You might be, have a public witness of Christ that is defaming him and profaning his name, and I don't blame them for walking away from that Jesus. We've got to be very careful. <laughs> because what Paul is addressing here is of serious concern. That's why he's so emotional. Like, I love it. My, I mean, you can ask Tyler. I don't know how many times me and Tyler in a private conversation, he's seen me type in the words, what, question mark, exclamation point. I think that's an accurate way to give emphasis to what? Like, I'm, a, I'm like emphasizing and emotional and like, what the heck is going on? Like, what? And that's what Paul says. So I'm like, Paul is speaking my love language here, right? 22, verse 22, What? So here's what they're doing with the Lord's Supper. You need to understand the term Lord's Supper. If we actually literally translate it, it would say the supper that belongs to the Lord. What Paul is doing is he is identifying Jesus as the host of this meal, not the owner of the house. Why does that matter? Because we don't understand this necessarily in our culture. We try to do this with our children. We will say to them, when so-and-so invites us over to their house, we are going to eat whatever they set before us without complaining. Why? Because I want them to give honor to the host. It's a way of honoring them. This is what they teach. This is like short-term missions 101. You go overseas and you sit down. They're going to invite you in. And they're going to literally cut the chicken's head off in front of you. And you're going to freak out. Don't freak out. And then they're going to serve it to you. But they're giving you the best of the best. And you're going to honor them. And you're going to eat it. Because honor means something in those situations. And so what Paul is doing here is saying, Jesus is the host of this meal. So how we respond to the Lord's Supper gives either honor to him or brings shame on him. And what he is saying, and this is huge, you are shaming Christ. You are profaning his name. You are offending his house with how they're taking the Lord's Supper. So here's what they're doing. Verse 21. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? That's what Paul's asking here. In exactly that tone, high-pitched and everything that I just did. That's Paul. I feel it. You feel it too, don't you? Yo, let me keep going. Get amped up. Go faster, higher, louder. You should feel what Paul's feeling right now. Are you kidding me is what he's saying. You mean to tell me you get together at your agape feast, your love feast. That word agape, right? What does that mean? Unconditional love. And in the midst of your agape feast, your love feast, your unconditional love feast, there are people coming in who cannot eat because you've already eaten all the food because you helped yourself. There are people with nothing to drink because you drank so much you got drunk even. And you think you're going to honor the Lord, the host of the meal? What he's addressing is there were these wealthy, privileged members of the church that were coming in. The poor people couldn't be there. They came later. Why? Because they were working. <laughs> they were actually out doing stuff and they couldn't get off the job. And so they would show up later to these meals oftentimes. There was also in these homes, there was a place where the meal would be had, but it was so small. They would have the rest of them out in kind of the courtyard area. So these people would be out in the courtyard waiting for anyone to bring them anything. They had no access into the room. But the people who were wealthy with status, they were welcomed in eating to their heart's content. And he's saying, you eat your own meal. He's not saying they all brought their own sack lunch because there was a pandemic and we didn't want to share food. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is there was a meal that was provided for everybody and you selfishly filled yourself up before you even gave thought to anybody else. 
You didn't wait on them. You just got right in there and you ate. I got to eat. I'm thirsty. I'm going to drink. And they were whining and dining themselves, which was very common in the Roman culture. In fact, the Dionysius, the god that they would worship, one of the gods they worshiped there, was known as the god of happiness, basically. And that in a sense, when these, they would get together for these feasts that represented this, uh, the Dionysius god, uh, they would come together, and the whole idea was if you don't leave happy and with merriment, you've sinned against God. So in many ways, what they were doing is coming in just full-on helping themselves. They're just satisfying themselves with, the ne- with absolute neglect for those that were poor among them, or least able to access it. And what he says is, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Hear that word despise is hate. Do you not have your own homes? Do you hate the church of God that much that you will humiliate those who have nothing? Now, we don't think this is a problem for us, because we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a second. You're all going to have a chance to go get it if you're a Christian. We're going to take it. We're going to eat it together. And this is part of what Paul's thing is here, is that we take this together, right? That's why we do that. It's a good thing. So it's easy to look at this and go, well, we don't do this. Our gospel communities here, okay? Kevin's going to talk about it here later, but I'm going to talk about it now. Our gospel communities back last August, Tyler refashioned them to look more like these love feasts. That they would center around a meal. And around that meal is where we would share with one another what God's doing in our lives, what we're struggling with, what we're learning. Maybe God's given you a word to share with the group, maybe a prayer to pray or something like that. We talked last week about this is the space for prayers and prophecies to take place to, and build one another up in the faith. And so we've modeled our, our gospel communities after these love feasts with that in mind. Now, in our, you go to a gospel community, the chances are, no, you're probably not going to have a bunch of people that are eating and drinking before everyone else arrives and no one has anything. That's probably not going to happen here. But this stuff takes place today. Our society views the poor the same way as the Roman society did. They're stupid, they're worthless, they're uneducated, they're in the way. And here's the thing. We see this happen in our worship gathering. And I, I say, well, I don't, I don't do that. I don't treat people that way. I don't know. I want to challenge you one Sunday to come up here at about... 10 o'clock, just go hang back there in the corner and just watch people. Watch who gets talked to and who doesn't get talked to. Watch who is around each other and who doesn't around. And you'll see people, friends, move toward friends. You'll see visitors just kind of standing there wondering, is anybody going to talk to me? And oftentimes what you'll find is the person who is the one standing there by themselves is either an ethnic minority or they're poor. Yeah, right here at Redeemer, this is happening here. I watch it. I'm not the only one that watches it. People have told me about it. It happens all the time. Why? Those people are too much work for us, aren't they? And it's not just them. Are we not the same? Are we not always in this kind of relational, transactional relationship type stuff where we're measuring people by what they bring to my life? Right? Are they going to elevate my status or are they gonna, am I going to be embarrassed to be seen in public with this person? Are they going to say something inappropriate and I'm not going to know how to respond? Or are they going to do this? So we do the same things. But then we we want to be self-righteous and be like, no, not me because I vote this way. So I can't be like that. Okay. You know, like people are like, well, I'm not racist because I voted for a Democrat. Like, you know, some progressives are some of the racist people I know. You can exploit anybody for anything and make it look like you're awesome. (laughs) We do this all the time, and we do this in the church. That's why we sit around and go, well, I don't understand why these people don't hang around with us, because they're not, they don't feel wanted. They don't feel welcomed here. They don't feel like they can even, nobody's even interacting with them. 
I mean, I'm just curious how many of our visitors over the last, let's just go three weeks, have been invited to a gospel community and they weren't invited by one of the leaders at the church. Do we do this? Do we welcome people in or do we measure them up? We do that. We do both. I think it happens both ends. So we got to understand, we can't just look at this and be like, well, phew, I'm glad we're not like the Corinthian church. We're way more like the Corinthian church than we want to be. But why is Paul saying all this? Look at verses 23 through 26. And this is going to sound very familiar if you've been here, because we do this every Sunday at communion. We read this text. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the, new, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, verses 23 through 25 there. We read that every single week. And when you just read it outright, that's great, right? This is the Lord's Supper. This is Paul saying, this is what Jesus delivered to me. When Paul says that, what he is saying is, I am handing exactly to you what Jesus handed to the apostles. This is, he is putting Christ's name on this. Now, Paul's an apostle. So when he says things, he has the authority of Christ to command things. But when he does this, is he's trying to get very specific and saying, this is directly from Jesus' mouth. This is exactly what happened. Jesus is the Lord of the Supper. This is his meal. So he introduces what this meal is and he says what it is. But what you're not going to see in just a quick reading of this is that Paul is actually rebuking the Corinthian Christians with this text. Because what he's addressing among them is that you have these divisions among you, right? But then you also have this social status thing that's going on, right? Where you're humiliating people who don't have the status, the honor, or whatever else in the community that you have. And so you find yourselves whining and dining with the best of these while you completely ignore the worst of these or the least of these, as Jesus would call them. And so Paul is going to now bring the Lord's Supper into view as a correction to their abhorrent behavior. And I want to do something with this real quick that's not going to make any sense at first. But I want to go back to what I said at the beginning, talking about how we're hungry for glory and we seek vain glory and why this is, how this is all going to tie together, okay? Paul has already addressed in chapter 10, I want to read this again, verses 16 and 17. He's already talked about the Lord's Supper before he's even gotten to this. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul is saying that in light of talking about food offered to idols. And he says that if you eat food knowingly offered to idols, you are participating in idolatry. You are having fellowship. That's what that word literally means. You are fellowship. You are joining yourself together with this idol. So then Paul flips the script and says... Here we go with the Lord's Supper. So that when you eat the bread and you drink the wine of Christ, you are fellowshipping and participating in or joining yourself now, uniting yourself to Christ's broken body and his blood shed. 
So this is why it's called communion here. That's why we say communion. It has to do with this union, right, that we have with Christ. Paul's favorite statement throughout the Bible and throughout his letters is to talk about our union with Christ, our identity in Christ. That whole phrase, you'll see it, in Christ Jesus or in the Lord or with the Lord, is Paul addressing our union with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. This meal that Jesus is offering is a fellowship and a participating in his broken body, his blood shed, his death, right? And his resurrection ultimately. But we're fellowshipping, we're having union now with Christ. But here's what happens. So now that we're united with Christ, we have to understand profanity and what it means to profane God's name. Israel. Israel's name means wrestle God. The name Israel. That E-L on the end is God's name. So wrestle God is what it literally means. Now, I want to read from Ezekiel here real quick for you. You don't have to turn there, but Ezekiel 36, if you want to write it down and check it out later. I'm going to read from Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22. And I want you to listen now as God talks about what Israel has done to his name. Okay? Starting in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, three times in those two two verses, you hear the, the phrase profane my name. Now, When I say profane the name of God, I am not talking about the name G-O-D, God, right? That name comes from a Germanic tribe who had a a word for their creator God named Gott, G-O-T-T. And we took that and translated it into English, and that's where we get our term God. Okay? So if you really want to get shocked, I'll just shock even further real quick. The word Allah in Arabic is closer to the Hebrew word Elohim than our word God will ever be. So when people get lit up angry over this stuff, like there's a reason these terms are used. Every language has a way of kind of understanding these gods. And so the Germanic tribes had got, and the English got transliterated to English to God, G-O-D. I'm not talking about that, right? We're not talking about you accidentally said, oh my God. And we're like, it's gosh, as if that's better. Just say OMG. If Twitter gave us anything, it's a way to say bad words without saying them, right? I'm not promoting that, but you probably heard it that way anyway. Here's the deal about profaning his name. When we carry the name of God, Israel, God put his name on them. Listen to this. He bestowed honor and glory on the people Israel. What do we know about Israel? They were the lowest of the low of the peoples of the world. And he said, that's the people. I'm choosing you from among all the nations. And I'm going to put my name on you, my glory on you, my honor on you. So when Israel walks around with that E-L on the end, they are literally bearing the name of God. They were to be his representatives on the earth. When you read the Old Testament, you'll read things like, you will be a light of revelation. Revelation to the Gentiles. And he's speaking of Israel. 
And you're going, wait, he's not speaking of Jesus. He's speaking of a whole people. He's speaking of both. He is speaking of Israel. But when Jesus comes, what's revealed is that Israel was never going to be the sufficient Savior. We were always looking for one who would take on true Israel. And so Jesus now bearing God's hand, he is God in the flesh. He comes and what he does is he now lays down his life, lays down his rights, lays down his freedoms, lays down his power, lays down his authority, and lays it all down bear on the cross in hum, uh, humility, taking our sin and shame, our shame, so that all who now trust in Christ, he bestows the honor of being named after God once again. You belong to him. This is what the Lord's Supper is representing, our union with God. We now have been bestowed with this great glory and honor because he's given us his name, his character. We represent him on the earth. That's a really good thing that's going on there. But Israel, in this case, has profaned his name. How? How did Israel profane his name everywhere they went? Why are they getting sent into exile? Because they were unjust. They were oppressive. And I don't need Marxism to tell me that. The Bible says it. They were oppressive. They were unjust. They were inhumane. They were evil. They constantly sought to be like the world around them, never truly looking to the Lord and trusting him. And God says, everywhere I sent you among the nations, you profaned my name. They did not reflect his name, which is this, that he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. That's the fame name of God. That's who he is. And Israel did not display that to the nations. And so God says, you have profaned my name everywhere you've gone, but I'm going to show myself holy through you. Now listen to the next part of Ezekiel. Starting in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean of all your unclean, uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus the Lord God on that day says, I will cleanse, from all your, cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will cause cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. What is that? That is, in Ezekiel, the new covenant that God is going to make with his people. 
Jesus says, this is my blood in the new covenant, of the new covenant. He's ushering in this new covenant where I'm gonna cleanse you of your uncleanliness. I'm gonna take out your heart of stone. I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh. I'm gonna put a new spirit within you. I'm gonna put my Holy Spirit within you to teach you to walk in my ways. I'm gonna rebuild the desolate places. I'm gonna gonna replant the wasted grounds. I'm gonna rebuild the uninhabited cities. He's the restorer of broken things. He's the one that takes the dead and brings it back to life. This is the new covenant. And what he is saying in this new covenant is that you are gonna be my people. You are gonna bear my name and I am gonna show myself holy. How? Through you before their eyes. Meaning he is interested in our holiness, not because of just your holiness, but because it proclaims his holiness to the world. Through a transformed life, God is going to put on display for all the powers and principalities and every human eye out there what God has the power to do through his people. This is the new covenant. Now, I'm sure you're going, what in the world does this have to do with the text? What Paul's rebuke is, is that he is saying, when you gather together for the Lord's Supper, you are profaning the name of God like Israel was doing. Because when you gather together, you are completely missing what the whole supper's all about. It's not about you. It's not about me. Look, I get we live in expressive individualism land. So this is going to be a tough one for us to swallow. But what Paul is saying is that the Lord's Supper does not just unite you to Christ. It unites us to one another. So when you, just like last week, when you dishonor the poor among you, when you dishonor the vulnerable among you, when you trample the people in your congregation like we're seeing happening across the U.S. because their immune systems are weak and we say, stay home and do your thing. Let the healthy get on living. You trample the poor and the weak. That's not what this is about. This is about looking like Christ. This is about laying ourselves down, honoring the other person. How much lower do I need to go to give you honor? If I need to give up this, I will give it up. If I need to throw this aside, I'll throw it aside. If you need help, we're here to help. You're not charity, you're family. Poor people are afraid to ask the church for money. They have to make up excuses. You know how many times me, Tyler, and Kevin this last year have heard, hey, we're going to come to church. Also, we need some money. I'm like, stop telling me you're coming to church. It's because people in this town have told them, if you want your electric bill paid, show up on Sunday morning, our pastor's kind. If you'll walk to the front, I bet he'll pay it. You think I'm making that up? True story, heard it from a pastor's mouth. What are we doing? What about the poor among us? We get excited reading Acts chapter two. They had everything in common. Anyone, no one had needs. They just brought their needs to the table and people met them. People sold houses in order to meet needs. We're terrified to ask for help because the church is notorious for treating people like they're charity. What is wrong with us? I feel Paul. What? (laughs) What are we doing? Do we despise the church of God and humiliate those who are without among us? The Lord's Supper is this beautiful moment each week where we don't reflect on ourselves and our glory and how awesome we are. The Lord's Supper is a moment to go, wait a minute, this is about the one who has all glory, all honor, all power, all authority, all wisdom, all might, all everything, all the riches of all the, uh, all the heavens, and he gave it all up to take the form of a servant and die on the cross. 
When you take communion each week, do you feel that weight? Do we dishonor God in taking this? Yes, you may say, but I just lifted my hands and worshiped and I understood the sermon and I believe in Jesus, so I took the communion and it was great. But what if you're dishonoring your brother or sister in Christ? What he's saying is, if you're dishonoring them, you're dishonoring God. It doesn't matter how you feel on the inside. This is exactly what we talked about last week. How do we rob God of his glory? By robbing one another of honor. By not giving honor to one another. By not showing dignity and respect and honor to one another. We don't just belong to Jesus, folks. If you're a Christian this morning, we belong to one another. And everybody in here has a claim on my stuff and I have a claim on your stuff. And that's extremely uncomfortable in the land of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But I don't really care about the Constitution when I read the Bible. I submit to a king and a kingdom. And we have to do the same thing. To live as a distinct people in the world. Now, that's why Paul's laying this out. It's a rebuke. You're not taking the Lord's Supper. You're just eating bread and drinking wine. That's what he's saying. Just like if you get baptized and you're not a Christian, you just took a bath. That did nothing. There's nothing there. If you don't really believe in Jesus, you just got wet. And if you don't really do this right, you're just drinking and eating stuff. But for it to be the Lord's Supper, who the Lord belongs to him, he's the host. Then to honor the host, we honor his way, the cruciform way. We defer to others. We become the servant of those who are lesser or seen as lesser. That's what Kevin's going to talk about the next couple weeks in chapter 12. Paul talks about how the body has many members of the body, right? The eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Or the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. But he's going to talk about these dishonorable parts. And he talks about how do we show honor to them? They need honor. So it's imperative that the ones who have the honor give honor to those. They defer. In verse 26, that's why Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's what this means. When Jesus returns, he comes as Christus victor. He already is the victor, okay? But we love to talk about Jesus as the victor right now. We need to understand that to be united with Christ right now, we are united with him in his suffering and his death. That's what's supposed to shape our life, not power and strength and victory. Like American Christianity so often propagates. No, it's humility, it's suffering, it's serving. And when Jesus returns, we will reign with him forever and ever. But that path is a path we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his suffering. We proclaim his death. So when we take communion, we're reminding ourselves as we take that down, that we're to walk in the humility of Christ, in the suffering servantness of Christ, toward one another and toward the dying world. Now listen how Paul ends it. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. So Paul says this, this is how he wraps it up. The call on them then, when you come together, is to judge yourselves. Examine yourselves. That's what he's saying. Because he says, if you're not going to do it, God will. God cares too much about his name and his honor and his glory to allow you to continue to go around profaning it without any judgment. And we see that playing out here, right? So he says, you drink, eat and drink the, uh, eat the bread, drink the cup. In an unworthy manner, you're guilty. <clears throat> uh, you will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So he says, examine yourself. And so eat and drink before you eat and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now this is speaking twofold here. It's speaking of literally the body of Christ. You're profaning what he did on the cross for you. But he's also talking about discerning the body, the church, the body of Christ. When you go to take communion, do you put others in your mind? Do you consider others? Do you consider what it looks like? Have you dishonored them? This is where we examine ourselves. Is there someone here right now that you're kind of waging war with in your heart? Maybe communion needs to stop before you go talk to them and give honor, right? Find reconciliation, find some peace there and, and do what we've been called to do. But we have to discern the body. Are there those among us that we're dishonoring? Are there those among us that we're mistreating? Are there those among us that we're neglecting? We need to be careful when we take this together that we discern the body. Each of us individually, but us collectively too. But we also discern the body of Christ. Are we offending Christ's body? Are we offending the host of this supper, the Lord of the supper? Are we offending him with what we're doing? Are we kind of just nonchalantly going over there and taking it? Do you think, well, I'm not really a Christian. Maybe I am. I'm just going to take it because I don't want to feel left out. Like that would be a way of offending God. Like this is not okay. And so judgment will come, he says. And he says, for those of you who haven't done this, this is why he's saying some of you are sick and weak and some of you have died. Now, what some people want to do with this is say that if you got sick, you got sin in your life. You don't have enough faith. You're not doing enough things. Jesus has already blown that out of the water when they said, is this man blind because his parents sinned or he sinned? He's like, neither one of them sinned. Why does it always have to be like that? Paul's already addressed that too. Not every sickness is tied to sin, but I do think there's a part here we need to pause for a moment and ask the question, is it possible that sickness could be a sign of sin in the body of Christ? And Paul's not even necessarily saying those who got sick are the ones that sinned or died or got weak. I think it's okay for us to pull back, and this is what Paul's saying, and examine our hearts, our minds. Not just us individually, but our own body. As we're taking communion, that we would judge ourselves first so that we wouldn't be judged. And when God judges, it's a discipline for the church, not so that they would face condemnation, which Jesus has already paid for. But he will judge his church and he will discipline her. And it will be extremely uncomfortable. And I do think in large part, that's what this pandemic is. God's doing a thousand things at any one time and we're aware of about two of them. I don't doubt for a second that the pandemic, that God is also using that to expose us, his body to expose how we've gone for years neglecting the vulnerable among us, the poor among us, the weak among us, the least of these among us. So what are we gonna do? Get back to normal? Let's get back to 2019? I, I look, as hard as this last year and a half has been, I don't wanna go back to that. 
the Lord's exposed a lot in me, and I'm thankful for it, and it's been hard. And I keep saying, Lord, keep your fat foot on the gas. I don't, don't let up yet until all this is, get it out of me, get it out of me, get it all out of me, whatever it is, I just want it out. <laughs> it's painful, I hate it, it's gr- ugly and gross at times, but I, I want to be purified and be holy as Christ is holy. I don't want to be so spiritually minded that I don't actually care about people on the ground. And so Paul's charge is this. It's real practical. It's not theological. <laughs> Get this. He just lays into him, and then here's his, his solution. Wait for one another. When, when you come together to eat, if you're hungry, eat at home. Wait for one another. Take this meal together with honor. Not just to say that we did it. Look how honorable but for the public witness of Christ even. To give glory and honor to Christ because we understand he's the host. When we take this meal in a second, he's the host. He's welcoming us into this meal that he's offering to us for you to take participation in his life and his death and his resurrection. And to take it as people who now belong to one another. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Wait for one another. It's one of the many one another commands in the Bible. So here's where I want to leave us. I want to challenge us. We are glory thieves because we're hungry for glory. We go after, we seek vainglory. We're always kind of sizing everybody up. Look, I, I raised support for 15 years. So if you don't know what that means, I was with like a campus ministry. I was with another collegiate ministry that traveled around. Even as a church planner, I've had to do this. I've had to go ask people, churches and, not, you know, and members of churches, for money. Right? Would you give 100 bucks a month to support my ministry? And if you, don't wanna, if you want me to just be gut honest with you, it was a lot of sizing people up. One of the biggest challenges I was ever given was, Brian, stay on your side of the table. You walk into some home and it looks massive and you're thinking, oh, I could ask easy 500 bucks a month. This would be great. And the reality is they're in debt on everything in there and they're going, we can give you 25 and then you walk away angry, right? So this is like, and I'm going, wait, what? Stay on my side of the table. Okay, stay on my side of the table. But it's really hard to do when you're rolling up and somebody's got a Lexus and a whatever other car that can't pronounce the name of it in the car, you know, driveway and you walk in this big old building and you're asking for just a hundred bucks a month going, I'm pretty sure they could fund the whole thing. It's hard. But you know what? I'm always on my best behavior. Like some of you, you get that. Like you feel the weight of that. Others, you don't know me enough yet. And you're like, best behavior? You seem like a nice guy. And uh, so I don't know why you're laughing about that. I am. But here's the thing. It is within every single one of us to size people up. Like, who can help me advance, right? So we don't associate, like Paul says in Romans 12, with the lowly. But he calls us and commands us to associate with the lowly. Like, we think about how you chose the church that you go to, or maybe that you don't choose one at all and you just like to bounce around. Are we not oftentimes looking for the church that's going to affirm my political views, 
my, my, my stance on this issue or that issue, a church that's going to affirm, you know, my theological thing here, my this, that, there. Oh, now it's like, which churches have masks, which churches don't have masks, which, you know, all these other things. So it's like, we, we got all these issues that we're going, like, so we'll sit around and we'll go, what, what are we doing? We have options, right? So we have a culture that is providing us with opportunities to go and find the people that will then affirm everything we believe about ourselves and thus bestow honor and glory on you. And we have to be careful. I'm not saying you can't go to other churches. Look, some of you are visiting here, and you're going to find, man, this is not the church for me. That's fine. We encourage you, go to a local church and plug in. Be a part there. And don't go to a place where you disagree with everybody, because then you create echo chambers, and we see what that does. It's not good. It's good to have people that are older, younger, white, black, rich, poor, all of that, college students, non-college students, families, no families, married, not married. It's important that we have all those people. It's part of helping us grow up into Christ, who is our head. And so I want to challenge you this morning. Is Christ's glory enough for you? If you're a Christian this morning, is it enough for you that he has bestowed on you his own honor and his own glory? And then the second follow-up is if, if you know that, receive that, believe that you're in Christ, what does that do for you and how you treat others? How does that affect the way you view the gathering together here or gospel community or DNA groups, our discipleship groups, or other ways that we gather together? And if you're not a Christian this morning, can I ask you this? What are you seeking for to give you glory and honor? Who are you hoping will bestow that on you? Or do you derive that from within somehow? Because it doesn't come from within. As created beings, it is given to us. And God is saying, hey, you are alienated, you are in shame, cut off from me, but I have made a way in Christ Jesus. And that you, not only will be given life, you'll be given wholeness and he'll bestow on you the same glory and honor that was bestowed on Christ after he was baptized when the Father said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And if you belong to Jesus in faith this morning, the Father is pleased with you. And my guess is you didn't wake up feeling very pleasing to God today. But he is. Because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord's Supper. Jesus, thank you that you instituted this that night with your disciples. The night, Paul says, that you were betrayed. That you were betrayed. How many people in here have been betrayed? And you're familiar with that betrayal. And in the midst of that night, you laid out for us something that would be done in every church, in every country, among every people, in every language since. This thing we call the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist. This fellowship and participating in this union with Christ and his people. Lord, when we take this meal, we are uniting ourselves with the early church, with the, the second, third century churches, all the way through the medieval times. We are, we are uniting ourselves with the historic body of Christ and the current global body of Christ. Lord, let that not fall short for us. Let us think of those things. 
This makes us utterly unique in the world. So may we not take it flippantly. And may our eyes be fixed on you and centered on the host in seeking to honor you with our lives, our thoughts, our words, and everything about us as we gather together in worship and as we go about our lives. Let us be centered on Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.